Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. The book of 2 Thessalonians, the book of 2 Thessalonians that is in the New Testament. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and it carries on <laughs> until you hit Acts and past that if you get to Revelation you've gone too far. Thessalonians comes before 1 and 2 Timothy and James and the end books. Two Thessalonians. I'm going to read the entire first chapter of Two Thessalonians, but here's the thing: I'm only going to preach from two verses. The last two verses in the chapter, that's verse 11 and verse 12. But I encourage you to read the chapter with me. The whole chapter is quite important in order to understand the context of verse 11 and 12. Two Thessalonians, chapter one. Is everyone there? Great. Two Thessalonians. Chapter one, beginning at the first verse, hear the word of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought. Always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions. That you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy for the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day. To be glorified in His saints and to be marvelled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Here's the passage that we're going to be studying this morning. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling. And may fulfil every resolve for good, and every work of faith by His power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ 
may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just so far in the reading of God's word, amen. Let's bow our heads and pray to Almighty God. Father, even as we come to you this morning, we come as those who seek bread, bread that we might eat and live. Lord, we are looking for a word, a word that can only come from you, a word that we might hear and live. Father, we need water, living water that is your spirit. Might we come to you this morning and drink and live. Lord God, this is an exercise which in many ways I have no control over. Surely you must move, you must work in the hearts and in the minds of men that they would see Jesus Christ and live. And so I ask this in his wonderful name, amen. Well, friends, uh, let me tell you what the big picture is of this morning's sermon. God will showcase the radiant glory of Jesus in your transformed life. God will showcase the radiant glory of Jesus in your transformed life. That's what I'm hoping that we see from verse 11 and verse 12 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let me start by way of introduction where many of our minds, I'm guessing, are this morning. As we come to 2024, as we stand on the cusp of 2024, many of us are thinking about resolutions. We're thinking about what might happen in the year to come. I sat down with my family uh, last Sunday after the service and I asked them, kids and Liesl, what's your plans for 2024? My oldest daughter is planning on doing some study next year and uh, she's looking forward to doing a counseling course and a course on executive um, planning or management or something to that effect. And so she's looking forward to expanding herself in that area. My youngest daughter is planning on leaving to go overseas next year. And so she has a whole lot of hours that she needs to get in in order to qualify for the position that she's wanting to go to. And so she's very focused on doing that. My son is 10. He wants to be a spaceman. <laughs> his, uh, his plans for next year were off the chart. Um, but mom reminded him that he'll be homeschooled next year and he got all excited, I'm just kidding, um, about grade five that he's going to be entering into. Now, what about you? What are your resolutions for 2024? Give that some thought. I, I'm guessing that many of you have thought about it over the last week. Many of you will think about it during the course of today. Many of you plan on coming to resolution before the end of this evening so that you can enter into 2024 with a plan, with a goal in mind. Maybe it's lose weight. Maybe it's get fit. Maybe you want to change your eating habits. 
Maybe for some of you, it's something that you want to quit. Maybe you want to quit smoking. Maybe you want to quit drinking. Maybe there's a sin that you desperately want to cut out of your life. Maybe you want to limit. I mean, we, we live in the 21st century, right? Maybe for 2024, you want to limit your screen time. Cut down on Insta and uh, TikTok uh, swiping and on Facebook if you're over the age of 45. Whatever it might be, whatever your resolutions are in your mind, I want you to recognize that the Thessalonians weren't too different from you. They had resolutions. They had desires too. In actual fact, that's how I came across this verse. I I went to my Bible concordance and I looked for the word resolve. And I found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, And in the 12th verse, this word resolve, you can read it for yourself in that 12th verse. It says that there was a resolve in the Thessalonians' minds. We read of their every resolve in verse 11. And this morning, we're going to consider how to embrace transformation in our new year as we study these two verses. Now with all of scripture, in order to understand one phrase and get to that word resolve, we have to understand the the verses that it is found in context of and we have to understand the passage that it is found in context of. Now I don't wanna unpack the whole of 1 Thessalonians, but I do wanna give you a high overview of what's going on because it informs the meaning of the two verses that we are studying this morning. And so if you go to chapter 1, verse 1, you will read Paul's greeting in verse 1 and 2. Paul's greeting to the Thessalonians. Uh, He's basically saying that this letter is from Paul in verse 1. It is to the the Thessalonians, which is a city, the Thessalonians, in verse 1b. And then he is giving them a blessing. Uh, He says, grace and peace be unto you in verse 2. And so we read Paul's greeting in the first two verses. In the next two verses, we read of Paul's thankfulness. Paul's thankfulness in verse 3 and 4. Read along with me. He says, we also ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers. Paul is thankful for the Thessalonians. And he is thankful in particular for virtues or attributes or qualities that the Thessalonians are bearing. Look, it says, we ought to always give thanks to God for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And then he says, not only are we thankful for you Thessalonians, Not only are we thank you for these virtues, these attributes which we see in your lives, but these virtues, these attributes are bubbling up in the midst of some severe persecution. Read verse 4 together with me. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. I hope you see that that Paul is thankful in verse three and four, and that really to sum it up, Paul gives thanks that the 
Thessalonians faith and love and endurance in persecution and infliction is growing. Now he goes from persecution and and affliction in verse 5 through to verse 10 to start to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And if I had to give you a heading for verse 5 to verse 10 in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it would be Paul's encouragement. Paul wants to encourage the Thessalonian church because they are going through some very, very difficult circumstances. He's already alluded to the persecutions and to the afflictions. But listen how he brings it out in verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just, firstly, to repay you, uh, to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and secondly, to grant relief to those who are afflicted, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is, friends, you are going through a difficult time. The church is presently being persecuted. The church is coming under heavy affliction. These are dark hours. These are trying times. But in the midst of it, I want you to lift your eyes and gaze above because Jesus Christ is coming soon. And when the Son of God comes, he will afflict your afflictors And not only that, he will repay you and restore you and exalt you. If I had to sum up from verse 5 to verse 10, it would be like this. Paul then encourages the Thessalonians that Jesus will return. And they needed to know that. They needed to be encouraged with vengeance for the afflictors and with relief for those who are afflicted. Now that lands us at verse 11. Verse 11 and verse 12 um, basically become a prayer that Paul prays after giving this thankfulness and giving this encouragement to the Thessalonians. And this prayer is a prayer worth us dwelling on, especially in light of resolutions and the year to come. It's only got two parts because it's two verses, so I'm sorry, I'm not very Baptist today. The first part is Paul's prayer in verse 11. And that's the first point of this morning's sermon, Paul's prayer in verse 11. Let me tell you what Paul is going to tell us, and then I'll read verse 11 to you so that we have it close to mind. Paul, yeah, prays that God would make the Thessalonians worthy and effectual. Paul prays that God would make the Thessalonians worthy and effectual. Let me read verse 11 so we have it close to mind and then I'll explain the meaning to you. Paul says, to this end, based on everything that I've just said, to this end also, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill Every resolve for good and work of faith by his power. Just so far in verse 11. Well, what does that mean? 
He first of all says, uh, to this end. And the question is, to what end, Paul? And it's to this end. He's just been speaking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's just been encouraging them that Jesus is coming again in the midst of the difficulties that they are facing. They can take hope in that fact. Now, he wants them to practically live in light of the second coming. And so he says, to this end also. To this end also, what? We also pray. We also pray. Paul was a prayer. Yesterday I, I spent some of, my, some of my day reading through Paul's prayers and looking at the scriptures, the many scriptures of prayers in the New Testament. Even in this book of Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, it is completely saturated on every single chapter with prayers of the apostles for the Thessalonian church. Paul prayed in tight corners when things were bad and he was locked up and placed in jail. And Paul prayed in bright corners when the Thessalonian church was flourishing and he wanted to give thanks to God for what he saw happening in, his li- in their lives. Paul was a man of prayer. And so as he comes to the end of this chapter, in light of the second coming, Paul is going to pray for the Thessalonian church. He says, we pray for you. We pray for you. Friends, this is a a pastor's heart right here. I mean, this is an apostle's heart, right? But this this is a pastor's heart. This ought to be the common practice of any man who stands before you with the Bible open and preaches on a Sunday, he should be given to praying for the saints during the week. And that means praying for you. Sometimes you as a collective, this is a collective prayer. Paul is praying on behalf of the Thessalonian church generally. But very often Paul gives individual prayers and John gives individual prayers and Jesus prays individual prayers in Scripture. I'm reminded of Jesus praying for Peter on the night in which he was betrayed, saying that he, he prayed that Satan, even as he sifted Peter, that, that Peter would not fall away. Our pastors, our leaders, our elders, your Bible study leaders should be given to the prayer of the saints. Now I, want you to give, I want you to give some thoughts to the kinds of prayers that we often hear. Uh, whether it be in our uh, Bible studies um, as we are offering prayer requests or whether it be in our prayer meetings before services. Often the prayers that we pray are for the very practical needs of the people that we are in contact with. So-and-so fell and hurt their foot. Um, So-and-so lost their job. Uh, So-and-so is having a struggle uh, at the office or whatever it might be. Now, those prayers are well and good. But when we read the apostles' prayers in the New Testament, we see something different. Paul, even in the midst of the Thessalonians' persecution and suffering and struggle, doesn't pray for their relief. He prays for their spiritual upliftment. His concern is that they might be built up in the holy faith and that they might demonstrate and show obedience to Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. Something of that needs to inform our prayers as well. Think of the way that you pray for your children at night um, as you go to bed. 
uh, the way that you pray for your husband or for your wife. If your prayers are merely for their practical needs, that's not bad, that's good. There's example of prayer for practical needs in Scripture too. But if those are the only prayers that you ever pray, might they pass the exams? <laughs> might they land that job? Might they, whatever it might be. If those are the only prayers you ever pray, you are missing out on the benefits that come from praying for the spiritual well-being of the people that you love and the people that you serve. Well, it says to this end also, we also pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling. That God may make you worthy of his calling. The idea here of calling is God's sovereign call to salvation. When God makes those who are dead alive in Christ, in salvation, at the point of salvation, there is a sovereign act of God where he makes dead men come alive. Well, yeah, as Paul thinks of these people that are struggling under affliction and struggling under persecution. He prays that God who saved them would be God that sanctifies them. Uh, There's something interesting. You don't see it in the English, uh, but you can see it in the Greek. There's something interesting in the verb use uh, in this uh, verse. The verbs are all in the aorist tense. Now, you don't have to go away understanding what the aorist tense is, but let me tell you what it means. If he prayed to make you worthy in the present tense, it would be, listen here, I'm praying for the Thessalonians that God would make them right now worthy of your calling, but he doesn't do that. He prays in a different Greek tense, and the Greek tense that he prays, that he prays in uh, gives no thought to time. It doesn't care about when the action happens. That calling which happened in the past, that calling which you are experiencing in the present, that calling which ultimately will last even to the future when Jesus Christ comes again, will you make them worthy of that calling? Lord God, would they be presently sanctified, progressively sanctified toward the image of Christ? Would they go from one degree of glory to the next that they might reflect his beautiful countenance to the world? Paul is praying that the work which God began in the Thessalonian church, he will see through to completion. But not only that, he he first prays that God would make them worthy of the calling. But secondly, he says, and may, and again, this is God, God may fulfill every resolve for good and work of faith by his power. There's that word resolve. It really means desire. The the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians have desires. They have resolves. And it turns out they're not hoping to lose weight in 2024. It turns out they're not just hoping for a new job and they're not just hoping that they can get fit or eat healthy. Now, the Thessalonians' desire, their resolves are for good. That's for virtue. That's for excellence. That's what Paul prays might be completed in their life. But not only that, he says, and every work of faith by his power. In other words, there are works that have been laid out for the Thessalonians even before the foundation of the world for them to do good works. 
And Paul prays that they would do those works. Now, what's the application here? Is it that we are to be worthy, we are to resolve, and we are to work? Well, no, because the verbs here aren't aimed at us. Paul isn't praying that the Thessalonians will make themselves worthy, the Thessalonians will make themselves desire good things, and that the Thessalonians will do the work which God has put in front of them. No, he prays that God himself will make the Thessalonians worthy, that God himself would make every resolve for good come to pass, that God himself would make every work of faith happen. And just in case you thought maybe it was the Thessalonians and God, he ends off the sentence with a prepositional phrase, by his power. The Thessalonians in this verse aren't doing these things by their goodness, by their virtues, by their strength, by their dynamis, by their work. No, this is going to happen by the power of the Holy Spirit of God working in the Thessalonians' hearts and in their minds. God is going to do this work. Paul prays that God would do something in the Thessalonians' life that they couldn't do themselves. Friends, God is sovereign even in our sanctification. But if that is true, why then pray at all? We know God is sovereign because in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, we read this. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day or at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew that God would get this job done in the lives of the Philippians, and he knew that God would get this job done in the lives of the Thessalonians. So why does Paul bother praying it at all? Well, this is a mystery of God's sovereignty and our responsibility, that God has declared both the end and the means of our sanctification. And so it is right that we pray that we might be sanctified, and it is right that we work with fear and trembling even as God sanctifies us to his own praise and to his glory. Second question that I had after why pray if God is sovereign, why, given this context, does Paul pray this particular prayer? I mean, this situation was dire. Their situation was desperate. For some of you, your situation is dire and your situation is desperate. How should I, as a pastor, be praying for you? Paul prays this prayer in the midst of the persecution and tribulation and affliction that the Thessalonians are facing. He prays this prayer as they are keenly hoping for the return of Jesus Christ. He prays this prayer that they might be transformed and made perfect for that day. That they would be ready for when Jesus comes. Because Jesus is coming. He's coming for the church that is under persecution and he's coming for the church that sits easy in South Africa right now. Friends, Jesus is coming and it is right and it is fitting that we pray that we too might be transformed and made ready and made right for that day that God might be glorified in us. 
Now I say God might be glorified in us. I'm actually getting ahead of myself because that's the next verse. And we, we get there right now. I'm going to read the verse and then explain the meaning. But let me give you a heading of what this section is. The first section was Paul's prayer. And I originally entitled the second verse as Paul's purpose. But after studying Paul's prayer, I realized that this isn't actually Paul's purpose. This is God's purpose. So Paul's prayer and God's purpose. Why? Why? Will God make the Thessalonians worthy? Why will God fulfill every resolve uh, and every good work? What is God's purpose in all of this? Verse 12. Well, let me tell you what Paul is going to say, and then I'll read the verse so that we've got it close to mind and explain the meaning. God graciously transformed the Thessalonians so that Jesus may be glorified in them and they in him. God graciously transforms the Thessalonians so that Jesus might be glorified in them and they in him. Read verse 12 with me. It reads, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It says so that, that introduces a purpose clause. Here comes um, uh, the, the result of what he had said before. So that the name. Uh, that word, whenever you read the name, you, it's not just the name of Jesus or the name of God. It is their, their authority. It is their person. It is their substance. It is everything that is about them. The name of our Lord Jesus. Uh, Jesus is Lord. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. He is God in human flesh. And Paul's desire as he prays this prayer and God's purpose as he fulfills in the Thessalonians this transformation is that the Lord Jesus might be glorified in them. That word glory is very related to the idea of weightiness, like a very weighty cloak. There was a time, and we'll get to this shortly, that we understood the weight of sin around us. Friends, Jesus Christ, although he came as a man, understood nothing of the weight of sin, but he understood something of the weight of glory, glory which he had with the Father even before the world began. Jesus, God from God and light from light and true God from true God, the darling of heaven did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, that weightiness of glory, and humbled himself and came as a man, took the appearance of a man and condescended and died even to a death on a cross never once becoming anything less than deity, but taking on to himself humanity so that it can truly be said of Jesus that he is fully man and fully God. 
But this glory belongs to him. And so in John chapter 17, we read Jesus praying, give me the glory which I had before the world began. Return the glory to me, God, because the glory is his, the weight is his, the majesty is his, the splendor is his, the renown is his. But here's what is mind-blowing about this text. It says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus might be glorified in you. Friend, I, I can think of Jesus being glorified in heaven above, surrounded by angels who sing his praise forever and ever. Worthy is the lamb that was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah. I can think of Jesus being glorified, seated at the right hand of the Father on high. I can think of Jesus being glorified, surrounded by an emerald sea, with all creation bowing before him. But the amazing thing about this text is Jesus is glorified in me. How is that possible? Friend, you don't know me well enough. (laughs) But let me tell you, I'm a worm, (laughs) less than a worm. And that should give you good cheer because if I understand scripture correctly, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God which makes you a worm too. How on earth can Jesus be glorified in you? And the answer is this. In our transformation, Jesus is glorified. In our obedience, Jesus is glorified. In our fruit bearing, Jesus is glorified. As we reflect Christ from one degree of glory to the next, as we put on display the reality that our stone, cold, dead hearts have been transformed into living flesh and live out our lives to the praise and to the glory of God, In that, Jesus is glorified. And he is glorified forever and ever. All the angels in heaven above, and forever and ever, myriads upon myriads of those who are saved will sing glory to Jesus because he is the lamb that was slain, that bought for himself and redeemed for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus can be glorified in you because Jesus saved you. Friend, you could not save yourself. You just couldn't do it. For those of you who have been saved for any length of time, you look back on your salvation and you marvel with all of heaven as to why you were saved at all. It was not that any good was found in you, but rather that you have a good Savior, Jesus Christ, who took you from the dead and transformed you into life for his own praise and glory. Well, the text gets even more startling because not only is Jesus glorified in us, but we are glorified in him. We're glorified in him. We read a little bit later in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, a passage which we covered a few months ago in our morning services uh, of this kind of glorification. Uh, in that text, it's, an, it's a picture of Moses. And Moses desires to see God. And through a, a very fascinating story, God hides his prophet in a cave of a rock and passes by the Lord, the Lord, 
and shows something of his glory, actually the back of his glory, to Moses. Moses comes down to the tribe of Israel, and what has happened to Moses' face? Well, it shines. In fact, it's so startling that the Israelites don't want to hang around Moses anymore. They, they're scared of him, and he has to veil his face. Friends, if, if that is true of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, what is the glory that might be displayed of God in you in the new covenant. Because in the new covenant, you don't just get to behold the back of the glory of God, you get the Holy Spirit of God to indwell you permanently from the moment of salvation until the time you're translated into glory and then forever and ever, amen. The glory of God ought to shine out from us to all the world that they might see. Uh, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, says, let your light shine forth among men. There's a sense that if Jesus is in you, the glory of God ought to shine out of you. How can it be any, any other way? I remember a few months ago um, when the uh, rugby guys were playing in the World Cup. Just after the World Cup, after we won, uh, my son had a Springbok rugby jersey, which he wore everywhere. In fact, eventually, we had to take it off him because it needed to be washed and it was becoming a little bit of a problem. And, but the reality is he was basking in the glory of the South African rugby team. And he wanted everyone to know that he was a South African rugby supporter. Friends, For us who have been saved, not only do we get to have the glory of Jesus displayed in us, but we also get to be glorified because we are in Christ. We are unified with Christ, not just a jersey that we wear, but God who is in us, union with Jesus Christ, a oneness with Christ. And because of this oneness with Christ, we have an internal inheritance in the heavenly places, seated far above the heavens. We have a glory, not of our own, not because of our works, not because of our goodness or because of our excellences, but because of the one that we praise and we worship and we serve. Well, that's the two verses, Paul's prayer and God's purpose or Paul's purpose. How do we go about applying this in our lives in the week to come? Well, firstly, believers. In this passage, the active agent of present transformation and ultimate glorification is God. And because of this work of God, our responsibility is to avail ourselves to the means which he uses to grow us. A couple of months ago, I published on our website the Baptist Catechism. The Baptist Catechism tells us and informs us of what these means of grace are in the lives of believers. The ordinary means of grace, the ordinary way that God grows those who love him who are in Christ. It's a question Number 95, what are the outward and ordinary means by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And the answer is, the outward and ordinary means by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, baptism, 
the Lord's Supper, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. In other words, if you want God to grow you in 2024, if your resolution is for the virtuous, if you desire to work to God's glory, if you want God to make you worthy of his calling, as sovereign God is able to do, then put yourself in the way of God in 2024. And you do that in such ordinary ways. You come to church, you sit under the preaching of God's word, you take communion, you attend to the reading of your Bible, and you pray all through the year. And as you do those things, God will do his thing. And his thing is he will make you worthy of his calling, he will fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Unbeliever, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Because it might well be that you sit here and you know nothing of this Jesus inside of you, this Holy Spirit inside of you, or the glory of God shining forth out of you. As you think of these things, they are foreign to you, but you are intrigued and your interest is piqued. For you, I want to say that those who suffer, the Thessalonians who suffered and hoped to be progressively transformed in this passage and ultimately glorified, are linked to another passage of Scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 to 10. In that passage, those who suffer are called by grace in the same way, and that grace is manifested in Christ's death and in his resurrection all of which um, come together to bring life and the result is glorification in their lives. Friends, what that means is the way to this glory must pass past the cross. There is no glory in this life without going through the cross of Jesus Christ on the way. And the way is narrow and few find it. Hear me now. Because of your sin, because of the reality that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and because the wages of sin is death, Jesus Christ sent his son into this world to suffer and to die in your place, the righteous for the unrighteous. But he did not stay dead. No, up from the grave, our Savior arose. And he arose in victory over death and over sin and over Satan. He arose to the glory of his Father who is in heaven. And right now Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and he, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and chapter 2, is coming again soon to judge the quick and the dead. Friend, on that day, there will be those who will be glorified, given bodies without sin, and given bodies where they can eternally worship Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior forever and ever, and there will be those who won't. For those who won't, they will be cast into a lake of fire, and there will be no offer of redemption for them. The call this morning on your life is urgent. Please hear and obey. All man is commanded everywhere to turn away from their sin and to cast themselves upon Jesus Christ and live.
do that. Do that at once. And as you come into 2024, resolve to live your life to the praise and to the glory of God the Father and Jesus Christ, his Son. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. In Jesus Christ, uh, we do thank you for your atoning work on the cross. Father God, we thank you for your authorship of salvation, sending your Son. And Holy Spirit, we, we acknowledge that all power is yours to both draw man and to save man, to sanctify man and to transform man and to glorify man. And we ask with the radiant glory of Jesus Christ, transform us as a people from one degree of glory to the next. For your own name's sake we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.